Welcome to Fired Up, a podcast to, to let people know what's happening in the, the front office and all around the sports business, the side of sports that, that not everyone sees but everyone um, is impacted by. Uh, with us today is Ian Thomas, editor of uh, Front Office Sports. So I'm just going to ask you, Ian, introduce yourself. Tell us about yourself, your career, and just everything that just is we, we really want to know. <laughs> well, well, great. Well, thank you for having me uh, on, on the podcast. Really excited to be here. Yeah, you know, I'm the editor over at Front Office Sports. We are a digital sports business publication covering everything from major professional leagues to college sports to amateur sports to esports to any any aspect of the sports business industry. We're looking to see why things are happening, what's happening, and break some news, have some fun in the process. Um, you know, for myself, uh, I joined Front Office Sports about uh, 15 months ago uh, as editor. I'd been at the Sports Business Journal for about five years prior. Before that. I was a financial journalist covering topics that uh, are not as fun as sports, which which we may not be on this podcast if we were talking about uh, private equity investments or, or M&A transactions or things of that nature. But, um, you know, it's been it's been a fun journey just to sort of see this industry uh, over these last six, seven years or so just kind of just ratchet up to that next level. I think, you know, the the impact that the sports business industry has on life uh communities, uh, just general popular uh, popular culture, I think is just people are, are recognizing how much influence these teams, athletes, leagues, the sports themselves, the industries they prop up, the companies involved kind of have on our collective lives and I think are showing a new level of interest in the business itself. Um, and it's, it's been really been fun to kind of be at that intersection of, like I said, sports business and how kind of the general fan and, and population kind of consumes it all at the same time. So. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a good gig, so I'm glad I have it. <laughs> good gig. Um, so take that a bit further. Uh, more about you. What makes you tick? What what really ignites that professional fire? And if there are other fires you're talking about, go ahead. Fair, fair enough. You know, it, it, the thing for me, and this has always been kind of my my interest in journalism specifically, is, has been kind of, you know, what drives some of the decisions that, that folks make. Um, and I think early on in my career, even when I was in college sort of studying to, to do this sort of thing, um, you know, the money that makes things move is has is, is always been kind of fascinating to me, um, you know, and, and how that kind of comes together, how people are seeing, trying to look ahead of the curve and see what's next on the horizon. What what can I invest in today that hopefully is is something that has longer legs long term, can obviously make a return on investment, but also in a lot of cases, you know, enrich a community, um, provide something that's not there before, um, things of that nature. And, and I, I think for me, as, as I have gone deeper and deeper into sports to sort of see, you know, the really smart thinkers that are out there, the people that are trying to predict what what people, how they're going to want to consume sports, how they're going to want to consume entertainment, what, what they want the stadium uh, experience to be like. Granted, we really don't know what that's going to look like at all right now, but, but just all the things that kind of have to go into making these really big bets on different things and, and hopefully seeing them through, through uh, success and, and pushing them through tough waters, all that kind of stuff. Um, that's really what what interests me and, and kind of gets me excited each day to go and, and talk to different folks and help our reporters try to find those stories. Um, and it's, it's really been fulfilling, I think, this year with everything, the craziness going on and people trying to figure out their go forward strategy to kind of, you know, chronicle as much as we can about that um, through this through this. Yeah. Un- unprecedented year, to say the least. Yeah. Yep. Um, so are you an educated journalist? I, I hope so. <laughs> I, I, let me ask that a different way. Where, I, was that what that was that your um, area of concentration in college? 
Yeah. So I, um, you know, when I, my, my mom was a teacher and growing up, I always thought uh, I, I would kind of follow in her path. Um, you know, at a certain point, I think some I, writing was always in the back of my mind. I always really enjoyed sports specifically. I think that something kind of switched for me going from sort of, you know, talking about things that had happened and trying to predict to some degree, predict is maybe the wrong word, but, but talk about what, what may happen, what people are looking at forward, trying to understand more of their thinking versus kind of um, just diving in and saying, this, you know, this is why we think this happened. Let's tell people who are doing it now and, and trying to make things happen. And that's where I think I kind of switched from the idea of kind of teaching, which I think says some overlap in terms of approach to more on the, the journalism front. I, I went to um, some undergrad. I, I switched into journalism and, and did that for a bit. I went to graduate school as well to really kind of focus on the business side of journalism just to make sure that I had kind of uh, mind my P's and Q's on that front to make sure that I, you know, could kind of get a better grasp of, of what, a, what an earnings report is and how companies report uh, financials and all things of that nature that a um, little bit tougher uh, <laughs> than some of the other things that, that we do. But um, yeah, you know, it, it's one of those things where it's a learning process, especially in the sports side. So much stuff happens new every day, um, always new initiatives where you kind of have to stay top of your game. Otherwise, I think um, stuff will pass you by pretty quick. Oh, yeah. Where'd you go to school? Uh, I went to, so I grew up on Long Island. Uh, probably about 45, 50 miles east of uh, Manhattan. So I went to Stony Brook University, which is a, a state school out here. Then sure. I went um, to CUNY Graduate School of Journalism, which is part of the City University of New York network here in Manhattan. Um, and yeah, uh, New York hasn't gotten rid of me yet. So, you know, <laughs> I'm, so, I'm, so I'm still here. So I, I, I happily waving our flag for that one. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. Let's switch over to, to front office sports and front office sports compared to other business models has kind of burst onto the scene and, and appears to be doing very well. Can you um, kind of unpack what, what, what has made it work and, and uh, what's it look like going forward? Sure. So you know, I think specifically in this kind of sports business space, um, uh, the previous place I worked, sports business journal, is, uh, with all due respect to them, is the thousand-pound gorilla of this marketplace. They are, they've been doing it for, for decades at this point, a lot of respect, uh, well-deserved respect, um, you know, and continue to make, to really kind of uphold that really great standard of, of journalism. I think at the same time, you know, there, there was opportunity for, for more companies covering this space. I think at the end of the day, if you, you know, if you have a five, six billion dollar industry with one main publisher, you're probably missing a lot of things. And that's no fault of theirs. It's just a lot is going on. And I think our, our opportunity, as we saw it, um, was really to kind of jump in there and, and tell some of those stories in a different way. Um, tell some of the stories that weren't being covered as much. Um, you know, speak to maybe somehow of a different audience. Um, maybe that younger sports business professional versus the the more accomplished one that um, the sports business journalists traditionally spoken to. And I, I think, you know, there's also that point, like I said, I think, you know, fans today are, are more attuned to the business side of sports than ever before. They're more attuned to the deals that Bron James has than they may have been about, uh, Bo Jackson's a bad example, but athletes in like the 1990s. Um, and, and I think ultimately as the business around sports has grown, there are so many different companies that want a piece, want to be involved. And I think, you know, our, our sort of mission was to basically Let's really try to dive into the, the different aspects of that. Let's try to show more of that pop culture connection. Let's try to show more of that, but also introduce it in a way that I think, you know, uh, a front office executive at a team or a league could read one of our stories and learn something interesting, 
but you know my dad who's a fervent sports fan would read a story and say hey this is you know i i get this i understand why i know it's occurring and i think we really tried to lean into that into that niche uh, a bit um i mean i, I call a niche like i said sports is is probably the, the biggest industry in america outside of maybe hollywood or music in terms of people's knowledge of it and i think just just kind of shining that business light showing why things are happening in that sports world and and how business is somehow behind that or or money or or whatever is is kind of guiding that so you know so far so good i think you know people people have responded uh well to it i think you know with the sports shutdown these last number of months, uh, or I should say last number of months before it kind of came back in earnest in the last, I guess, 90 days or so, you know, for the most part, all that was being discussed was off the field business decisions, which I think gave us a different opportunity, albeit we, you know, we much would have rather had opening day and March madness and, you know, the NBA final, Stanley cup, final golf, tennis, NASCAR, all those things would have been great if they just happened normally, but, you know, having that, opportunity to some degree of of everything now is a business off the field storyline kind of gave us a different chance to to kind of showcase the work that we've been doing um, and, and hopefully uh, gain some some readership followership out of it when you're talking to folks at some of the teams and leagues how are they feeling we do, we do a lot of research with fans but how are the front office folks feeling about the execution not knowing that that they need a revenue stream um, clearly, how do they feel about the execution? Um, not from uh, not again, not from a revenue level, but from an emotional. How's it happening level, and does that how does that translate as they go forward? Well, I think you know from the folks that I've spoken to, I think it's it's a little mixed right now. I think for for a lot of people, there's there's excitement around some of the things that are being are being done to reach fans differently. I think a lot of trends that were kind of occurring are getting just just fast forwarded a million times. You know, things like reaching fans through social and, and media and digital connections and doing things to reach them in their homes. You know, investments in things like apps or or different kind of growing that fan community different ways. I mean, leaning into esports and things like Twitch or you know, for an athlete doing stuff where they are on Instagram Live talking directly to fans or their different kind of business models where Maybe they're they're more focused on selling things through an e-commerce store versus a, you know, retail footprint. Th- things of that nature, I think, are already happening. Have just been you know, 10x fast forwarded to make it happen because they just can't, some of those other things can't occur. I think there is also a little concern and trepidation just because so much of the traditional industry is based on the back of fans going to games and spending a lot of money, and it's just not able to happen. And I think if you look right now at the industry or some of the headlines over the last six or eight months in terms of furloughs and pay cuts and you know what's going to happen when you know just don't have that those revenue streams i think there's a lot of concern about you know where the industry really goes to make money from here i think you know unfortunately there's a lot of people who have lost their jobs uh period in in all industries and i i think the sports industry not that it was uh you know uh, always a strong haven for things like that because you know teams and efforts always seem to shoot for the moon and sometimes miss. But I think there are a lot of folks that that realize maybe their jobs right now are, or, you know, if they're working on the ticket sale side or the sponsorship side, um, there's there's concern there about, you know, do we, can we even bring fans into the building in 2021? You know, what does that look like? If, if we can't sell 20,000 seats, you know, do we need X number of ticket sales folks? Um, 
obviously, fingers crossed, we get to a point where the pandemic is a little bit more under control and, and we get to a position where that is allowable. But I think, too, you're you're there's still a question of how a fan interacts with a team and how you sort of make money off that relationship um, that that this this moment in time may have changed forever. And, um, you know, there are teams that are spending money trying to figure that out. There are some teams that unfortunately are going to have to cut back. And uh, and that usually means personnel um, until they, someone else figures it out. So I think there's, there is that nervousness there of just sort of like, in some cases, what does this mean for my job or my career trajectory or, or my paycheck in the moment kind of thing. Right. I've talked to lots of folks in front office that, that are, no longer employed and those that are still employed that now have you know double or triple the duties that they had before yeah, uh, but there's still a nervousness but but some are going um attacking you with so much vigor that it's it, yeah. it's been rejuvenating for those that stayed and for those that have left not so much but uh, it will be tough so um th- then i was thinking we started to see um Gener- generational impact. We, we've looked at, well, you brought up, you touched on esports for, for a second. Mm-hmm. Uh, we saw that on a really sharp curve of in, increased engagement. And since the pandemic, it's just kind of skyrocketed as far as uh, fans getting involved and, and, and bringing a younger audience to, to sports. And that, that's interesting in of itself. And we also, we're also seeing that even now older groups are coming into that, into that space. And, um, so I'm just thinking about what, what generational impact, um, and along with, um, our changing ethnic makeup of the population. Um, how do you see all that changing the way, uh, sports are marketed and any, any operational imperatives that have to take place? Uh, it's a great question. There's, you know, there's so much money flowing into esports specifically, trying to see if that's the place that that explodes next. I, I do think, yeah, I'm, I I grew up as a video game player and still follow it. And and I know to your point, there's there's a generational shift there. I think there's, you know, people obviously younger than I am that maybe the first team or first athlete they loved plays for an esports organization. And I think for you know a certain generation of people even. Even people my age, uh, you know, early 30s, that's that's crazy to think in some capacity. Um, or, you know, their favorite person who is a, you know, professional something is a, a YouTuber. Um, and I think ultimately that's, you know, that's where some of this will go. I think, I think you know, so many leagues are trying to, there was already a discussion that so many leagues about, you know, pace of play and, and, and fan engagement on a, on, a, on a daily. I mean, look, look at some of the efforts that were being done in Major League Baseball even before uh, everything that happened with the pandemic now to make sure that they could capture the attention of, attention span, excuse me, of that younger generation. And I think, I think leagues and teams will look to adapt to that. I think esports is in a very unique position to sort of capture that audience. I think you know, challenge obviously that continues for esports is that I don't know if it's a very approachable thing for people that aren't attuned to what it is to get engaged. And I'm not sure that, you know, traditional sports being played in the video game format is the way in for others. Also, I think, you know, if you're a football fan, I'm not sure if you're diehard Madden NFL viewer kind of thing, uh, unless that's really of interest to you. I, I, I think ultimately it, it, it's, it's going to come down to that digital connection. I think for, for smart teams, smart leagues, and smart athletes in some respects, it's going to be kind of leveraging the different aspects to success. I mean, you see, see someone like Juju Smith-Schuster, who I think is 
one of the, the most well-positioned athletes to sort of take advantage of all these things. Like he has a Twitch channel. He's out there gaming. He's part of a, you know, a, a clan, if you will, a, a team, um, you know, but at the same time, you'll see him on Sunday uh, with the Steelers or whatever team he ends up being long-term if, it, if that changes. And he's got his traditional sponsorships that he does. Um, you know, he's on social media interacting with fans in a certain, you know, in a different way. And I think about, you know, how leagues can use that to their advantage and, and making sure that they're still sort of ahead of the curve on social things that I think kind of help the NBA position itself is probably the most followed league right now is the way they've embraced social media. And I think you, know, you get to this, you know, where are we in five, 10 years? I think how leagues interact with esports, and you see the investments that every league is taking on that front. I think that's, that's a pathway into it. And, and that, like you said before, um, you know, if, if a fan is not at a stadium, um, but they are, maybe they don't go to games anymore, but they follow a team on Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, TikTok, pick the social Twitch, and they're, in, they're just engaged there. Are they, are they a more valuable fan than someone who buys just a season ticket? I think that the equation of where the most, where the most, a team get the most value out of a fan in that sense, that may be changing as well. So I don't have a great answer for what that looks like. People much smarter than me probably are trying to figure it out themselves. But um, I, I do find it really interesting if that's if that's kind of the route we kind of go there. Yeah, I'm in, I'm intrigued with. Uh, I've been a firm believer for a long time that part of um, the entertainment of sports is not just what's being played on the field. It's just not it's not just sure. the players. It's it's the entirety of the experience, and it's bringing people together in a sense of camaraderie around around a team and a sense of community around that team that that goes that that feeds our our soul if you will and how is how is does our will our souls not to be need to be fed in the same way if we shift totally to um esports now i'm thinking a few decades down the road but um you know i've i've even had some crazy thoughts around how do you incorporate the two so i was standing on the field one time at in um in Dallas at AT&T Stadium um, on the 50-yard line going, can you imagine the fans in the stands, there's not really a player on the field, just holographic images and the players in the back room with their controllers being who they are and they all have a personality. Somehow I still believe that could happen because we still want those fans in the stands and everything can be monetized that way, but, uh, and no one gets hurt. <laughs> so, so, so I deviated, sorry. Anyway, um, I, I can still see that. I feel it on the field. So uh, I, think, I think you're right, though. I think, I think ultimately, and I think about some of the su- things that I've seen, I think are most successful these last number of years in sports. And, you know, Major League Soccer comes to mind there and, and there, it's expansion. And I think, you know, going into markets where there haven't, you know, maybe not the most well-known teams or, or under leveraged communities and, and really building a, a fandom around something, especially as you mentioned before, different kind of demographics, maybe fans that weren't spoken to in a way by a traditional stick and ball sport. Uh, Atlanta United is a great example of that. You know, it's a, it's a city full of, of younger folks that maybe didn't, ha- that came from other places that didn't have a connection to the Falcons or the Braves or didn't grow up in the Maddox Glavin, that era of team. And all of a sudden, here's a new team that speaks a language they agree with. And all of a sudden, there's 70,000 people showing up for a soccer game and of all different races, colors, ages, ethnicities, beliefs. And I think that's a beautiful thing. And I think esports can maybe play a similar role. Like you said, it's tough to f- see, you know, that city connection to esports in the same way. But, um, you know, if you're a younger fan that, you know, uh, to your point, you know, I'm, I'm from New York. Most of the teams that I like haven't been good for a long time. A team steps on the scene and 
uh, starts doing well and it connects to me in a different way, I think in a younger generation of fans, like I think that that creates a new community around it that I think could be fostered in a way that, that makes them love sports and in a way that maybe it's different than you or I, but still is, is, is great for that community and that growth. Right. And the community doesn't have to be the immediate geographic community. It's the community in which they, yeah. in which they, they hover, that, that, that they live. Shift over to just um, as, you, as you gather information. So now from an editorial perspective, has your approach, approach to, to gathering reliable information shifted at all um, during this year? Yeah, I mean, I think especially in, in, with the sports landscape, you know, being here, you know, specifically in New York, you know, a, a normal time of year right now, you know, I, you know, there's lay out the sports calendar and there's dozens of events that are happening any given night. And, and I think, you know, there's always the best place to meet folks are in a setting like that, going to a game, seeing how things work, getting ideas that way. Um, you know, all that has just been obviously just completely stripped away. Um, you know, I haven't done an interview in person since February, which for a journalist is a, a bit of a weird, a weird <laughs> circumstance. Um, and I think, you know, those face-to-face interactions, that's, that's where you're going to really be able to get to know that person or, or, you know, even just casually kind of have a conversation and, and understand them a little bit better. And I think, like I said, especially in the sports business space where so much of what you discuss or talk about is, is things that will come to life during a game. You know, how are you doing a promotion or, an, or a sponsorship in an interesting way? How, what's your game presentation look like? What is, what is the stadium like? How, you know, if you're focusing on, that answering that million dollar question of, of how fans spend money with your team, usually it's done in person. So, and physically seeing that is sometimes the easiest way to understand why teams or leagues are doing the things that they do. And, and that obviously just isn't happening both, you know, for us to kind of understand it, but also for teams and leagues to, to do that. So, you know, it's, it's been a little interesting just trying to connect with people. I mean, on one hand, people are a little more available, which is nice. You don't have people traveling all over the world and, um, you know, saying, Hey, listen, I'm on, on a flight for the next 12 hours, but when I land, I'll talk to you. It's more like I'm sitting in my kitchen. So give me a call. And, and that's good on one hand. On the other hand, it's, it's obviously, you know, as we think about the industry and like I said, some of the networking things and, and stuff that as a journalist, you kind of just have to do it. That's kind of thrown that awry. So, you know, it's, it's hard to say if it's good or bad. Um, some things I think, Certain people have have really leaned into it and enjoyed it uh, and done and embraced the digital nature of things. Some things I think people are still kind of struggling with, but um, you know, hopefully, fingers crossed to some level of middle ground normality sooner than later. How do the, your contacts, um, as they move forward and look to the future, look to trusted organizations like yours to to be supportive of the business? What what role do they play? Do you play to to support them and vice versa? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, and this is kind of where our, our our relationship with some of these teams and leagues always is interesting because on one hand, you know, we're we're always tasked with, with talking about some of the new things they're doing, some of the different things that they do, um, you know, highlighting some of the, the interesting executives and interesting moves they're making. At the same time, it's it's also our responsibility to make sure that when things aren't going right or things are going bad or they make the wrong choices that we also showcase that as well. Um, and I think that, you know, I think it comes to that, that level of their understanding that we're going to treat them fairly and give them a chance to speak and, and give them the opportunity to say, this is why we're doing what we're doing. And hopefully you can, that's what you're publishing, that sort of thing. I mean, it's, it's always going to be that give and take in that sense. Um, 
you know, at the end of the day, we're not our position, our our place in the world is not just to be a, a cheerleader for for sports, but also to just to really just say, hey, this is this is what's going on. This is why this is why they say it is, and this is what other folks think about it. And if that's you know, I think as long as we stick to that sort of thing, people understand that that's what our our mission is in that respect. Um, and and thankfully they've responded well to it. I think you know it just comes down to making sure that we always stay sort of fair in our approach in that sense. And that's what keeps you trusted. I hope so. <laughs> I can't. I can't speak to it, but I, I think at the end of the day, you know, uh, making sure that we we treat them, I think, as they would want to be treated. I think that's that's ultimately and and treat everyone in the same respect. I think that's that's you know we we're not holding anyone to different standards, but at the same time, we're we're holding them to a high one. So, um, you know, making sure that that's the case. Excellent. That really helps lead into the next question. So, unpack the what you believe are the. The top five moves that it ha- that have happened related to the business of sports since March of this year, and why? So I do think I think ultimately we'll look back and sort of see the the embrace of this bubble format really kind of having a long term impact. I think I think the control of the assets in that respect, even in times where eventually um, fans are allowed in mass back at games, I think I think the this bubble idea can can set, can continue. Um, I think the idea of, of having you know the ability to have your sponsors presented in interesting ways, having all your players on a campus and creating content around that. Um, and there's a there's a, a company right now called Athletes Unlimited that is doing something really interesting with women's sports, uh, especially softball right now. And and basically even before this, their idea was let's bring all the players into one environment. We'll have kind of control over that environment and showing the content, having you know really behind the scenes things. We we've saw that with things like hard knocks and last chance you and, and these really behind the scenes in-depth thing that I think connect with fans in interesting ways. And I think having everyone kind of connected in that sense um, on one, on one, in one place, I wouldn't be surprised if, if we do see that long, long-term having more or occurring more, especially with, you know, media rights deals now driving and sponsorships, driving a lot of the revenue as opposed to just traditional ticket sales. You know, I think, I think the continued discussion around NIL, and yes, we've we're we're obviously uh, the image, image and likeness at the college level. Um, even though college sports has mostly paused, although we have do have some college football coming back, I think the the whole discussion right now, especially around the power that individual co- collegiate athletes are holding. I mean, you know, some of those things that you know, say Trevor Lawrence pushed out, and and hopefully for a positive way got football rolling again in some respects, or you see some of the Big Ten athletes and some of the, the pushback that they brought to the table when their decisions, uh, when the conference decision was made. And obviously, I hope for the best that that wasn't the right decision. But you see, that I think there are some shifting of the power at the college level to the athlete. And long term, I think, when as we think about NIL and how those athletes potentially make money, um, could be really, really powerful for that space. Yeah, I, I, and I think ultimately uh, another one that comes to mind is just sort of the the way that athletes are embracing digital um, and, and their own platforms. I think having this time now where they've had a little more time to themselves has been really interesting. You see someone like, uh, you know, a Jimmy Butler who creates a business out of selling coffee in his hotel room in, in the NBA bubble and now has a brand and potentially has a do- deal with Lululemon. I think athletes really understand that how well they can harness their digital platforms to build businesses around them. I mean, LeBron James has done this exponentially well these last number of years, but I think athletes with a little more time on their hands are are, are going to be even trying to do that even more. I think um, 
as we discussed before, esports and the moment that it had this this last bit of time has been has been really interesting. Um, I, I'm I'm very curious to see if it kind of can ride that momentum out um, and and see where it goes from there. And I, I would say last, um, you know, I, I think the platform that that this moment has given to some perceived to be smaller sports, um, sports that have been first out of the gate has been really interesting um, and, and hopefully beneficial to their growth long-term. One that comes to mind is the NWSL, the National Women's Soccer League, which was the first league uh, in the United States to come back to play full-time. The ratings on CBS were incredible. And I think, you know, coming out of the World Cup last year where the U.S. Women's National Team once again played well, um, obviously won the World Cup, you know, how does that momentum change that league trajectory long-term? The, the spotlight that it got, you know, it was able to be on a major network because not other sports were happening, but it also proved that it deserves to be there based on the viewership. So uh, I'm really intrigued to see how some of those leagues, something like maybe the Professional Bull Riders Association, you know, like they had a platform as well. Can they take advantage of this longer term? Um, I think I think some of these smaller leagues that or perceived smaller leagues that have gotten a little more of a spotlight. Can they maintain that fan base? I'm, I'm really curious to see if that is the case. Interesting. Looking beyond the disruption, um, what's been the greatest threat to live sports attendance? Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of, you know, a lot of, a lot of things happening together. We There was a story that came out on our platform this week that I'll, I'll, I'll quickly promote that was asking the, the question of where does capacity in stadiums go from here. And I think you know, there's already a lot of discussions ab- around, you know, as I said before, with, with the revenue from sponsorship, with the revenue from media rights increasing and potentially fan driven revenue, if you will, from ticketings, concessions, et cetera, being relatively stagnant or a smaller piece of that pie long-term, you know, how reliant are teams and leagues going to be on fans going forward in the, in that, in the building? And, you know, you've already seen stadiums where they've ratcheted that capacity number down. I mean, that's obviously creating creating more demand, um, which isn't a bad thing. But empty seats is never a good story to try to tell or try to get to folks in the building. And I think, you know, with everything happening right now um, and, and just the concerns around how do we get people back in the building safely, I wouldn't be surprised if, more leagues try to go or more teams and ownership groups as they look to build stadiums decide to go a little bit smaller. Um, you know, I do think we'll probably see more a trend towards more and more sort of suites, which we've already seen things where you kind of have that more self-contained environment versus that, you know, broader general admission kind of audience or, or space. But, you know, I think, I think until we can, until there is a broader solution for this virus and, and even frankly, I think, viruses like this in general and then how our response as a population kind of or as a country as a world frankly how quickly we can respond to them and contain them um you know it's, it's going to be a hard sell to say hey we're going to base our business model around having ninety thousand people in the same place pack shoulder to shoulder for four plus hours like i mean i'm sure there's i'm sure across this country there's ninety thousand people who would sign up for that at right at this moment i think there's a, probably a heck of a lot more who have would have concerns on top of paying top premium dollar to get into those buildings. So, you know, it's just, it, I don't, I don't have a great answer. I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm certainly not a virologist or, or anything of that nature, but I, I do think until we can, until there's a true proven solution for 
how we as a community, country, et cetera, address these things, uh, I'd imagine not many teams are going to be willing to, you know, base their business around that kind of uh, that business model, if you will. Well, we were, we already saw pre pre COVID the that there were lots of there was a growing number of empty seats in stands for, across many different sports, and that it was being talked about and addressed in different ways. And I have a sense this so this uh, disruption has accelerated those discussions. So, um, so seeing, so learning how to, or figuring out how to um, bring revenue without just that ticket revenue, I'm sure has been on the minds of many of those front office folks for a while. Uh, and the, also the downsizing of, of venues to, or right sizing of venues. You know, I think of Bristol Motor Speedway that had 160,000 seats. Those seats will never be filled again. Um, cause it, it just doesn't, and they, and I believe they, they understand that. And so, so they've been trying to, to, they've been, they've been addressing that for some time. Um, so it's just, yes, yeah, just really interesting. And so, so as I, as I, I'm going to go off card a little bit here and say, and say, has some of the reluctance to shift pre COVID, um, because due to a, a, a sense of, I'll let you play with my words, but arrogance or disbelief or just uh, um, kind of hiding and sticking their head in the sand and, and not wanting to address the issues because things were really good and they were making uh, lots of money. Um, wh wh why, the sl why the slow change in now? Uh, we know why it's accelerated, but why the slow change before? Well, I think, I think as of, of anything, it's, you know, it's probably one of those situations if it's not too broken, let's not fix it. But also, you know, the, the, the idea of spending money to potentially make money down the road. I think you've seen progressive leagues and operations where they've invested heavily in, in digital and that second screen experience or, or at home discussion. I mean, you know, re read back on some of Adam Silver's thoughts specifically on kind of what, what that fan and experience could be like at home. And I think ultimately to your point, I mean, as the viewership experience in your own home your own living room on your own tv increases increases the proposition of spending 400 500 to bring a family of four to a sporting event versus we'll sit in our couch and make hamburgers on our grill and spend 12 bucks and probably have a better experience you know you're you're already leaning towards staying home i think for a lot of folks especially for people who don't have that discretionary income to spend on something like this or even in some cases the attention span of kids who, you know, you're going to go to a baseball game after the third inning, they're going to want to run around and play and you spend 60 bucks in that seat. And is that, was that the best use of your money? Or now you're buying 10 things from the store and <laughs> they might leave in the car or forget on the, on the floor. And, you know, you, you think about the business proposition there. I think, you know, long-term to, I think exactly to your point, there's plenty of organizations that I think are starting to think about how they can extend that relationship into someone's home through, through an app, through a community that's created on a social platform, uh, through you know a, a digital fan club as opposed to a uh, an in-person one. I mean, I think the challenge there continues, and this is probably to your point why people have been slow to do it, is it's much easier to, to collect $80 from a ticket than it is to make sure you're collecting $80 from that person who's sitting at home, you know, doing that sort of thing. And I think also from like a data collecting collection point of view, you know, it's easier to, you know, you have that person in the stadium, you have a lot more information on who they are, what they like, where they're spending their money versus that shadowy person that follows you on Twitter that you don't really know all of those things. And I think, 
I think smart organizations right now, if they haven't already, are probably spending money on that kind of data collection, on spending trying really trying to understand those fans that might be perceived to be on the fringe, but the reality is maybe they're just as diehard fans, but couldn't afford the couple thousand dollars that it was for a season ticket. Um, you know, I think I think you're going to see a lot more opportunities there I, I, in terms of just trying to understand more about that person. Um, I think, you know, I think there's still going to be a lot of organizations that just try to, you know, really hold on to whatever is left of that ticketing market. And, and I, I do think that there will still be money to be made there. You know, I just, I think, you know, especially as we get, like, as you said, the, the right size venue idea, I think a lot of folks are going to be either priced out of some of these buildings or, or frankly, they're just not going to be the inventory for the, them to get in there. And I think, you know, you're going to see this shift, I think, of, of the haves and have-nots for teams and leagues in that sense. Can they monetize those fans that now are at home for financial reasons, for time reasons, or frankly, for personal safety reasons? Um, and I think it's it's going to be interesting, I think, you know, how they can improve on that at-home viewing experience even more so, but how they can make sure that that, that connection is even strong for folks that don't aren't in the building, for example. I'm going to jump to maybe my last question, but the, uh, it really down the path of of viewing and at home, and jump to the the article that I saw where Fox is uh, wanting to pay willing maybe willing to pay two billion dollars for Sunday night football rights, double what they paid uh, this past year. Um, unpack that from a business perspective, particularly when we talk we see. Uh, TV viewing, at least wired viewing, um, going away and more streaming, and um, that, that's a, that's that's a significant increase from one year to another, and probably won't. It's not a, a standalone story. Yeah, it, it, it's it's interesting. I think you know we're we're seeing the storylines right now around you know NFL viewership so far this season, and and there's uh, we we could talk for a couple hours on on the reasons there alone. So. I'll, I'll probably let that let that one sit for a bit, but I think, um, you know, to to your point specifically, I think you know for some of these networks, live sports is kind of the last bastion of appointment viewing. Um, you know, uh, I'm I might be getting the statistic wrong, but I, I believe it was 41 of the of the 50 most watched programs in 2019 were NFL games. Um, over the last 10 days, the top 10 television broadcasts were NFL games. Um, just, you know, through, across the country. And I think, you know, what was it? Uh, pretty much every, every major sports event since the shutdown, it basically has been the top most viewed thing since uh, Academy Awards. Like, uh, I mean, basically anything, the only things that can drive people to sit in front of a TV and watch it nowadays are the really, really high-end award shows, and those aren't doing great either, and sports, and, and predominantly the NFL, you know, how how they sort of rationalize spending that much money on the NFL product when you see what's happening with the ad sales market? I, I you know um, I'm not sure. Um, I do think there's going to be a little bit of of a bust there at some point where the the market is going to have to correct itself slightly. I, I mean, I do worry to some degree what happens with right fees for those you know perceived second tier properties. Um, the NFL is going to get its money, and it, uh, I would agree that you're going to see astronomical amounts of money paid for them and who knows what happens long term i do i do question what happens to a property like the nhl who's 
deals are up with NBC after this next cycle. And there's a good chance that NBC is going to have to pay through the nose to keep Sunday night football or try to get another NFL package. I mean, and NBC is already considering cuts because they're trying to shift towards Peacock and this new OTT platform there, um, which, you know, I'm not sure how that's going to do, but you're seeing, you know, things like ESPN plus CBS all access, or I guess it's Paramount plus now all these different kind of direct to consumer OTT platforms to try to make that business work. And, you know, I'm not sure if having 90 subscriptions is where they're going to make that kind of money. Um, but, you know, I, I think as there's going to have to be sort of semi reckoning at some point in terms of just rights fees going up and up and up and up and up and cable networks not seeing the residual money coming back in on the opposite side. I do think, you know, when it comes to stuff like the NFL, the Olympics, really those, you know, gold tier sports properties, um, I think the sky is going to be the limit because I think the networks know that, you know, they're not going to drive that much viewership with original programming, but we sure as can do it with Sunday night football and Monday night football and, and those AFC NFC windows on, on a Sunday. Um, I, I just don't know, uh, you know, like I said, where that, where, where that happens business wise for those second tier properties where you know, you're not, you're not going to see those, you know, 15, 16 million people coming in. Maybe it's closer to 400,000. Um, the money that might not dry up, money might dry up there. Excuse me. Well, even thinking of the, you talk about NFL being in the top uh, viewership, but in my understanding, while they're in those positions, they still don't have the same number of eyeballs that they had a year ago, Correct. and so and that's what drives revenue. It's those, it's the eyeballs, not just the position of where they are in in in, in viewership. So um, I'm hoping that it that that gets pat, that we that changes after people's. I'm doing some research as it relates to people's psyche and 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 how they're dealing right now. Um, when we started tracking fan sentiment during the pandemic, people said they would they would watch any sport that they could live. They're tired of reruns in sports. They're tired of rerun and regular programming. They got nothing else to do. They've got to have something, and they really want something fresh to, uh, especially in the area of sports. But truth is, they would, when sports came back, well. For instance, well, um, the first the first NASCAR race that was televised um, had a great viewership. The second one dropped down. Uh, now it was overall, I think, great for that sport because uh, it's, it brought new people to the sport that had ignored it before. And, and then seeing what we with, with uh, Michael Jordan and Danny Hamlin uh, starting a team that's that's great to to build a base of of new fans. And I'm excited about that. But back back to the to the viewership. Um, just cons- uh, so so as we look as we as we're looking at folks, they said they come back. They have not necessarily come back the way they said, because I think when they said they come back, they they were um, understanding that from their own, their point of experience of knowledge, and that's the way it used to be. So they thought sports going to be back on TV, great. Everybody's going to be yelling and screaming. And we know that's not what it is, <laughs> and and so um, I've likened it more to now feels like. When we're watching, it's like um, like a pickup game. Hey, you want to play some ball? And you think of Nor- poor University of North Carolina that, that has a three-week window of no games between games, and they couldn't find anybody to come play. It was like, hey, come come on, let's go, let's go play a game. Come on, let's go let's go to the lot and play. 
that's what it feels like for so many people that it that it's not quite it's sports but it's not quite the reality they remember and their their mind hasn't shifted in reality yet and so it's making it a little difficult a month amidst 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 I'll try that again uh, along with all the other areas of their lives that they're having to deal with it's just almost overwhelming and 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 until people can settle down I mean people people generally have trouble accepting change some better than others now we're all forced to deal with change and it's having a major impact across the board including sports and it also points to why we need really sports more than ever to help soothe some of that unknown and and allow us to to cheer and and escape for a moment and say damn that was great um so so um it'll it'll be interesting and uh yeah, it, uh, I look forward uh, with great hope of what lies ahead, and at the same time, knowing that it's going to be a whole whole lot different than, you know, when when as a kid I was in Bush Stadium in St. Louis watching uh, uh, Mark McGuire hit a home run, and, and then everything that happened after that. Uh, the world is different from from that point in time, and so um, yeah, it's. Uh, but I still love baseball. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. I, I think it's interesting though, too. But to your point, you know. It, I think, especially on the viewership front, it's always, it's always, there's always a desire to do an apples to apples comparison. And I think to your point, this, this year is so unique. It's hard. I mean, there, there have been a lot of numbers the last numbers of weeks that, you know, suggest that even though maybe some of the viewership or individual properties are down, more folks are watching sports content than ever before. And I think that, you know, you look at the NFL ratings over the weekend on Sunday, you know, on aggregate, they generally were down, but the pool of people watching sports that particular day was markedly up from 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 past years and i think you know you think about like i know the what one re- recently the one sunday it was like serena limbs was playing the us open you had a nba playoff game nhl playoff game multiple nfl games i think you had golf on that day you had i believe uh, i don't want to be quoted on this per se but i guess i am a nascar race that day as well so that's i mean that's like six premium sporting events that in a normal year you would get seen. Florida France was on that morning as well. So seven or eight properties that normally would get this huge spotlight based on where they were, and in theory you could be split across that board there. So I think you know yeah. uh, to your point, a sport like NASCAR, uh, I'm very curious to see where where they go next. Um, you know, in terms of does that viewership change in any way? You know, how much of that audience, like you said, that came on the early stages was a new audience and that stuck with them, and how many how much of that audience is just say, hey, like. I love NASCAR, but you put that versus the Panthers. I'm watching the Panthers on a, on, on a weekend, and that's you know that's okay. I think you know sports are going to do well when they understand where they fit in that hierarchy and, and what they can do to fill those fans' needs outside of that window. When you know they're watching a, a baseball game or or they love tennis, but they also love auto racing. I think you know understanding that is probably where I think as the audience gets more fragmented, it's going to be more and more important, especially when it comes to you know, like we've said many times, you know, monetizing that audience in a certain way. Um, if you have maybe, and maybe that's the better, you know, it's not, not the worst thing in the world if an audience is a little bit smaller, but they are diehards. Yep. If you have an NASCAR fan, you know, if that audience gets a little bit smaller, but those people are watching every second of that broadcast, buying merchandise on the app, engaging with the drivers, um, helping support iRacing or other, other, other properties that NASCAR deems uh, necess- or necessary deems as important to them um that might be even better so um you know uh 
TBD, but I, I'm, I'm kind of interested to see how it all shakes out. Ian, I really appreciate you spending time with us today and, uh, and your insights. You've been great. Um, and I hope we get to talk again soon. And, and this has been Fired Up, a podcast from Design Sentry Intelligence. Ian, take care. Thanks, Ken. Take care. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe. And if you really like what you heard, please leave us a five-star review and tell all your friends. Also, thanks to the good people that power Fired Up and Ignite Fan Insights at NASCAR, the National Sports Forum, and the Association of Luxury Suite Directors. To learn more about Ignite Fan Insights and what that exclusive content can mean for you, visit ignitefaninsights.com and subscribe today. It's a wealth of information all about the fan at no cost to you. Your fan club subscription includes our e-publication, podcasts like this one, exclusive blogs, quarterly e-newsletters, and timely webinars that keep you not only up to speed on what your fans are doing, but ahead of the curve and ready to take on anything that comes at you. Fired Up is hosted by Chris Wise and myself, Chris McAdoo. Thanks again for listening. Tune in next time. And as always, y'all stay fired up. Hey.